Well, praise the Lord. Let's open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 19. The Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in your New Testament. It's really, went back and looked this week, it's really hard to believe. But back on the first Sunday of 2015, that's right, the first Sunday of 2015, I began a preaching series through the Gospel of John. I have preached 52 sermons uh, to this point that have stretched out across a period of about three and a half years. And preacher, why did it take so long and why aren't we finished? And, and there are some good reasons for that spattered throughout that three and a half years, there were, were holidays when we would have preached uh, more specific messages. There uh, have been a number of guest preachers that we've had come in and minister to us through the Word. Uh, there were a number of Sundays that I wasn't here. I was out uh, preaching elsewhere. And then there were just some intended breaks. Uh, we just decided we would take a break for a while and, and focus on a few other things, really, honestly, just to try to, to keep the series fresh. So that's why we have yet to finish the Gospel of John after three and a half years, but the Lord willing, we will start again today, and uh, in a few weeks we will wrap up our study of the Gospel of John. So if you have found John 19, say amen. amen. All right. One of the most renowned and gifted Bible teachers of the late 19th century was a man by the name of William R. Newell. Mr. Newell was a noted evangelist and later he became an, an assistant superintendent at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And one day, while he was sitting in his classroom during a planning period, he began to pin a word picture in the form of a poem describing his testimony. His original words were pinned on the back of a used envelope. Newell then took his poem to a friend who happened to be the music director at Moody. And he asked him if he would put music to his words. And an hour later, the two friends were sitting at a piano and they were singing the song together. And here's what they were singing. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Caring not, my Lord was crucified. Knowing not that it was for me he died at Calvary. And then the chorus went something like this. Mercy, 
there was grace and grace was free. Pardon, you know, sing with me. Pardon, there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. Lord's help, I want to preach to you today through the Gospel of John chapter 19 under this title, At Calvary. And here's the thought that I want to begin with this morning. At Calvary, Jesus suffered as he died for me. Verse 1, it says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. An article from the Journal of American Medical Association entitled On the Physical Death of Jesus discusses the scourging practice, also known as flogging. And here's what it said. Flogging preceded every Roman execution, and only women and Roman senators were exempt. Soldiers were exempt except in the case of desertion. The usual instrument was a short whip called a flagrum with several single or braided leather cords at various lengths. Small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bone were tied on at various intervals. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing And his hands were tied up very high around an upright post so that the flesh on their body would be stretched out tightly in preparation for scourging. The back, the buttocks, and the legs were flogged either by two soldiers or by one who alternated positions. The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the soldiers and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. The article continues stating that as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions. And the leather cords and sheep bones would cut into the skin and the subcutaneous tissues. As the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage or circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. There were actually times when men did not ever get to the cross because they couldn't survive the scourging. But we know that Jesus did survive And that he did go to the cross. So Pilate took him and he scourged him. And then look at verse 2. And the soldiers 
plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And at the end of verse 3, we read, And they smote him with their hands. These soldiers are about to mock Jesus, and we'll get to that in a moment. But in preparation for their mockery, the Bible says that they planted or they braided or wove together a crown of thorns. It's believed that these thorns could have been as long as two inches. So imagine with me this morning, if you will, these soldiers as they placed a crown of thorns on the head of Jesus, not gently, mind you, but forcefully and very aggressively. Imagine the blood as it began to run down the forehead and onto the face and into the eyes and eventually into the beard of Jesus. Imagine it flowing down the side of his head and onto and into his ears and eventually down upon his shoulders. And if laying his bare back wide open and piercing his brow were not enough, John says that these seditious soldiers began striking Jesus in the face. Church, do you understand this morning that Jesus suffered when he died for us? But not only that, as I mentioned a moment ago, at Calvary, Jesus was mocked as he died for my sin. Verse 2 again, and the soldiers planted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. This robe was probably a tattered military cloak that had faded from crimson to purple. And they laid it across the broken and bleeding body of Jesus. And they started mocking him. Hail, King of the Jews! As they struck him in the face. Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! And we don't know how long this went on. We don't know how many men were there who struck him in the face. But I'm guessing this morning that everyone wanted to get in on it. Verse 4. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Pilate was claiming no part in what was going on, but in reality, he was a cowardly co-conspirator. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. Then came Jesus forth, verse 5. He was wearing the crown of thorns. He was wearing the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. I picture Jesus at this point looking like a a boxer who was terribly outmatched and, and unmercifully beaten by his opponent. 
my mind, I see a Jesus whose eyes are swollen to the point that he can barely see as the result of the bare-knuckled beating that he had endured. I envision him as he can hardly stand under his own power. His, his face is severely bloodied and Pilate parades him out in front of an angry mob and says, Behold the man. It's my belief that Pilate did that in hopes that those that were there would see the beating that Jesus had taken, would have seen the punishment that had been inflicted on him, and would have somehow found it in their heart to say, okay, that's enough, stop, he's learned his lesson. Let him go. But such was not the case. That bloodthirsty mob cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 6, the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him. They cried out, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. This is the third time that Pilate had declared the innocence of Jesus Christ. And no doubt no, no truer words had ever been spoken by this man Pilate than this. I find no fault in him because there was no fault in him. Understand this morning Jesus wasn't dying because of his sin. He was dying because of your sin. Because of my sin. Not because he was guilty of anything but loving us to death. John says in 2 Corinthians 5 that, that, that Jesus knew no sin. And later in the book of Hebrews, he says that he was undefiled. No, it wasn't for his sin that he was dying. It was for ours. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And by our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. And granted, in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16, it, it does state in the law that anyone who blasphemed the name of the Lord should be put to death. But understand this this morning, Jesus wasn't just claiming to be God, he was God. He was not just the Son of God. He was God the Son. So there was no blasphemy at all. It was true. Verse 8. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was more afraid and went again into the judgment hall and, and, and saith to Jesus, watch this interaction, whence art thou? Where in the world are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Without being sacrilegious this morning, I, again, I, I, in my mind, I picture a, an old Rocky movie where he's 
sitting in the corner and his eyes are swollen and his nose is crooked and his lips swollen and, and, and he can hardly stand, let alone speak anything. So in, in a rocky voice, Jesus says, Thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. I find it very ironic here that Pilate claimed to be in control of this situation, but the truth is this morning he had no control. He who appeared to be in control had no control at all. And he who appeared to have no control had all the control. And from thenceforth, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Because whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. This accusation of not being Caesar's friend, of not having his best interest at heart, was a very serious one because the Caesar did not take kindly to anyone who presented even the slightest threat to him. And history tells us that he responded very savagely to any hint of unfaithfulness. And Pilate wanted no part of that So he gave that crowd that day what they wanted. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, verse 13, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover at about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Jesus standing there in a pool of blood, nearly naked, stooped over, face contorted, blood running down his eyes that were now swollen shut, is mocked yet again as Pilate presented him as the king of the Jews. And the Jews responded, no, no, we have no king but Caesar. Those words reminded me of A couple of verses we studied nearly three and a half years ago now. In the very first chapter of John, verses 10 and 11, he was in the world. Speaking of Jesus, he was in the world. And the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. He came into his own. Those Jews. He came into his own. And his own said, we have no king but Caesar. They knew him 
They received him not. At Calvary, Jesus suffered as he died for my sin. At Calvary, Jesus was mocked as he died for my sin. At Calvary, Jesus fulfilled prophecy as he died for my sin. Now please don't, don't, don't drift off here. This is very significant. Look at verse 16. Then delivered he him therefore unto the, the, uh, unto them to be crucified. That is, Pilate delivered Jesus unto this mob to be crucified. And they took Jesus and they led him away. He, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him, one on either side and Jesus in the midst. It's amazing. I was reminded yet again this week of how amazing the preciseness which with Jesus fulfilled prophecy in his death. Note again verse 18, Jesus was surrounded by two criminals, two thieves we know they were, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, which reads in part, and he was numbered with transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Remember that thief on the cross who said, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Then drop down to verse 23. You still with me? Then the soldiers... When they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every uh, soldier apart and also his coat. Now, the coat was without seam, woven from top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And understand this this morning, listen before I go on. Listen, church, these are just not random things that just happen to fall in place. No, these were very intentional. Even as they took his robe and said, oh, no, let, let's not divide it. Let, let's keep it as one, and we'll just, we'll just throw dice or we'll draw straws, and, and whoever wins gets it. It's not like this was just by chance and it just happened this way. No, no, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at it, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Again, note that phrase, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Pastor, what Scripture? Well, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. That was prophesied hundreds of years before what we're reading happened. But it happened exactly as it was prophesied. Or drop down to verse 28, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, here it is again, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He says this, I thirst. 
Now, there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And there are yet other Old Testament prophecies uh, fulfilled in verses 31 through 34. And it says, The Jews, therefore, because it was preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken. This was not a common practice. It's not what they were supposed to do. But they asked special permission from Pilate. Hey, we need, these guys need to die quick. We need to get this over with. The Passover's coming. So they asked if, if they could break their legs that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. So the one on the left and the one on the, the right and then they come to Jesus, verse 33. They saw that he was dead already. Remember what Jesus said? No man takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. And they come to him. And they break not his legs. One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. Psalm 3420 was fulfilled in the fact that not a bone of Jesus' body was broken. And Zechariah 1210 was fulfilled when they pierced his side. And by the way, in not breaking the legs of Jesus, the soldiers uh, uh, did not do what they were supposed to do. And yet in piercing his side, they, they did what they shouldn't have done. Is that coincidental? No, look at verse 35. And he, that's John, the writer of this gospel, he never names himself, never identifies himself. Usually it's the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know it's John, and he says he, he was there at the cross along with the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the Bible says that Mary's sister was there, and there was another Mary there, and Mary Magdalene was there. And so John is an eyewitness of, 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 of the crucifixion. He saw it for himself. And he says this, he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe. John goes out of his way in his narrative of the crucifixion to show that what happened to Jesus was not merely a tragic end to a life well lived. No, no, it was the fulfillment of Scripture, which goes to show that Jesus was who he said he was. Pastor Prater, why did you name this series The Starting Point? That seems to be an odd name for a series on John. And here's why I did it. Because if anybody is searching for truth about Jesus, they need to start in the Gospel of John. Because John said in chapter 20, here's the reason I wrote what I wrote. It's so that people could read it and believe and have eternal life. 
And when people began to see that what Jesus did, how he died, and all of the details of his death, and they begin to see how that that fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, it dawns on them with the help of the Holy Spirit that while Jesus was who he said he was, he was God in the flesh. He was the Christ. And John said by understanding that, they can be saved and have eternal life. Which actually brings us to the last thought this morning with respect to John 19. At Calvary, Jesus suffered as he died for my sin. At Calvary, Jesus was mocked as he died for my sin. At Calvary, Jesus fulfilled prophecy as he died for my sin. Look at verse 30, and let's learn this this morning. At Calvary, Jesus paid the price as he suffered for my sin. In verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, read it together, church, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The last words of Jesus on the cross were this, it is finished. Well, Pastor, what was finished? The payment for our sin was finished. Those three words, it is finished, are actually one word in the Greek language of the New Testament. It's the word tetelestai. It was used uh, in the same way by different groups of people for example it was used by servants when they would report back to their masters and and saying hey everything that you told us to do it's tetelestai it's finished we're done it's complete it was used by artists when they were finished with their painting and were convinced that it was exactly like they wanted it to be they would pronounce it tetelestai it's done The same word was used in the military as a battle term to announce that the battle was over and the victory had been won and the warrior would raise his hands and he would shout, Tetelestai! It is finished. When someone would make the final payment on an installment, they would receive receive a receipt and that receipt would be stamped Tetelestai, which meant that the bill was paid in full. There was nothing left to pay. During his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You see, according to the law, where there was sin, there, there must be death and Every time the Hebrew people sacrificed an animal, they were admitting their sin and they were making atonement for their sin. Even in the Old Testament, they understood without shedding of blood is no remission. The problem, though, with those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament was that they could not permanently remove sin. 
Those sacrifices only covered their sin temporarily. That's, that's why the priest in the temple was never allowed to sit down while he was on duty. It was his way of symbolizing that his work was never done. The people kept coming back time and time again, offering one animal right after another animal, atoning for more sin, all the while in their hearts looking for the ultimate lamb to be offered that would be the final sacrifice. Well, Jesus was the final sacrifice. Remember back a long time ago, we looked at John 129 where John saw Jesus and he said to those standing around behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world the book of Hebrews says this by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ how often church once for all and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. You remember the Old Testament priests, they could never sit down. While they were on duty, they were always working, they were always offering sacrifices. But, but John says, or, or excuse me, Paul says in the book of Hebrews that when Jesus finished, he sat down. Why? Because there's nothing else to do. His job was done. The price has been paid in full. It is tetelestai. It is finished now if Jesus paid it all then that means all there's nothing left for us to pay Jesus didn't just make a down payment and and then leave you and I here to keep up the installments well, Jesus said, I'll get it started, but then it's going to be up to you to finish your salvation. No, no, Jesus paid it all. So here's what that means today. Salvation is not a matter of Jesus dying on the cross and then us doing good works, hoping to do enough to merit eternal life. Salvation is not a matter of Jesus dying on the cross and us joining some church or, or, or us trying to be a good person or, 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 or us being baptized either as an infant or as an adult. That's not what salvation is about. Salvation is about Jesus. It's a matter of Jesus dying on the cross, period. I want you to listen to this. Very important verse from Galatians chapter 2. It says, I do not frustrate, Paul said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, it's a very simple argument. Then Christ is dead in vain. In other words, if there's some other way to be saved other than Jesus' death on the cross, then why in the world did he go through all of that? 
He went through all of that because there is no other way. The word frustrate means to set aside. It means to disesteem, to neutralize, or to violate. And here's what Paul is saying. Salvation cannot be by grace and works. To try and add something to the death of Christ is to set his death aside. It is to disesteem or have no respect for everything that Jesus went through. The scourging, the crown of thorns, the bare knuckle beating, the mockery, the nails in his hands and his feet to say that somehow I've got to do something to add to what Jesus did in order for me to get to heaven is to disregard all of that. Try and say that there's something that we must do to add to God's grace is to neutralize the power of the cross. It's to violate God's word. So here's the deal this morning as we wrap this up. If there's anybody here today who is of the belief that salvation is anything more than admitting you're a sinner and repenting of your sin and calling upon the name of Jesus to save you. I don't want to be rude this morning, but I'm going to be honest. You don't understand the cross. You don't get it. And I would venture to guess this morning that you still need to be saved. And if you are saved, I'm thankful this morning Brother Tyler had us come and bow a knee or at least humble our hearts sitting down or standing up and taking a moment to thank God for the cross. But if you didn't do that today, you need to do that. Now let me say this, the words it is finished, those weren't the wail of a helpless martyr, they weren't the, the gasp of a, a worn out life, they weren't the words, they weren't words of defeat or of desperation, no, 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 they were words of a conqueror. They were words of victory. Jesus had won. He had won the victory over the penalty of sin, which is a hopeless eternity in a real place called hell. And every one of us sitting here today, that's where we deserve to spend eternity. Come on now, we don't deserve to go to heaven. We've not done anything that would merit God's love for us or God's grace for us. But Jesus won the victory over the penalty of sin, which is hell, and we don't have to go there. But I like this, because it goes along with what Beth and the choir sung this morning. Jesus also that day won the victory over the power of sin. So here's what that means today. It means that as a believer, 
you don't have to live in bondage to any sin. It doesn't matter how others see you. It doesn't even matter how you see yourself. When Jesus died on the cross, he died and gave you the power to put all of that back together. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you don't have to live in bondage to emotions like fear and anger and bitterness and anxiety. Why? Because it is finished. Jesus won. He destroyed the power of sin. That means you don't have to live in bondage to things like alcohol or tobacco or drugs or immorality or pornography or anything else that may vex your soul. You do not have to be tied to that anymore because as we read in the Gospel of John chapter 8, Him therefore whom whom the Son sets free, He sets them free indeed. The invitation this morning is this. If you're lost and you want to be saved, you may be a churchgoer. You may have been raised in church. But here's your thought process. Well, I was baptized, so I'm good. I'm a good moral person. So surely Jesus will let me in. And what you don't understand today, it's not about you, ma'am. It's not about your religion, sir. It's about whether or not you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean by that. There's a time in your life when God so gripped your heart uh, as we, we, I hope he did this morning through the singing and hopefully through the preaching, where you realize, wow, I'm a sinner, and if I die a sinner, I'm going to go to hell, and I don't want to go to hell, and I know that God loves me because he sent his son to die for me, and that pastor is telling me through God's word that if I believe and receive Jesus Christ, I can be saved. And so that means there's been a time in your life when you've done that if you would have to tell me this morning well pastor i think i've done that then you haven't done it because when you do that you'll know it you won't go back to some religious deed that you did you'll go back to a moment in time when you say god i'm a sinner and i know you love me i know jesus died for me And I know I can't save myself. I know there's no church that can save me. There's no creed that can save me. There's no no religious activity that can save me. Only Jesus can save me. And the best I know how right now, I'm asking Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. If you've never been there, you need to get there. And you can do that today. And we'd love to help you with that. If you didn't take a moment earlier in the service, to thank God for the cross, then you need to do that. And if you are saved, but you're really struggling right now with with some sin in your life, please know that Jesus sees it, he understands it, he knows it, he loves you in spite of it, and he will help you gain the victory if you'll ask him. So with every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, I'm going to pray.